Today I'll be reading from uh, John chapter 8, verses 1 through 12. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this is a woman who has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge spring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus, left al- and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No. Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. Again Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is the word of the Lord. So there are a lot of interesting things about this particular calling as a pastor. One of them is that I sometimes catch people in the building. Once caught Andrew Means, who I had heard a lot about but had never gotten a chance to meet. It was really fun to get to know him a little bit. Once I caught some teenagers here late at night, and you'll be pleased to know that I made them move furniture, which is why I was at the church, which I think is not why they were on our property. And yesterday I, I saw a man, and, and you can tell by the walk, you know, I know most of the members of the church pretty easily, even from a distance, um, and know even why they're at church most of the time. And his walk was different, right? And I didn't recognize him, so I introduced myself. And I'm pretty cagey when I meet someone, and I don't know why they're here. I'm not, I, I'm, first of all, I'm wearing like a hoodie and jeans. And, um, but I don't tell him I'm the pastor. I'm just like, hey, what's up? What are you doing here? You know, and I say it nicely. Well, once uh, this man and I had been talking for a minute, his eyes welled up with tears because he came to be a follower of Jesus here. And he kept looking around the property, and what he was thankful for is the memory of the spaces. He proposed to his wife here. Um, and I, I asked him to, to contact Brad Moger, who was the youth pastor at the time, and encourage him. His name's John. Brad, if you end up listening to this sermon, I'd love to know who he is. He's supposed to email me, but I don't know if he's going to. And the reason I tell you that story is um, what he knows, the reason tears welled up in his eyes is because he knows that he's not condemned. He knows that he's accepted, as we sang about, and as I hope you believe also. Here's what happens, I think. As best I can tell, men and women believe God exists, and the way the curse which is what happened to the whole world and especially people after Adam and Eve stopped trusting God, that he had a flourishing life for them. Men and women who believe God exists are nervous or terrified or shamed into thinking or worse, believing strongly that God is a condemning God. Which is why I think this text is so important. And of course, we need God's judgment 
because there's sin and horrible things in the world and we long for him to make those right. But there's a difference between condemnation and sin. There is one unforgivable sin. Do you know what it is? It's believing you can save yourself, that you have no need for a savior. That's it. Everything else, there's healing and acceptance and assurance of love from God. And as I was writing this sermon, I was wrestling with calling uh, grace and truth, mercy and love, calling it like a balance or the right mixture. And that is the wrong language. Jesus isn't balancing grace and truth as he both says to the women, neither do I, woman, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. It's not the right mixture of mercy and love, stability and accessibility. It's all of both of them. Jesus embodies grace, neither do I condemn you, and truth, go and sin no more. Now, during the story that, that Caleb was so kind to read for us, Jesus is actually positioning himself not as a teacher, both literally and figuratively, but as the authority on this. The authority on the scripture and the authority on this woman's forgiveness and the authority on how community is supposed to respond when one is caught in sin. Where is the guy? <laughs> That's part of the story always has blown my mind. Like... Anyway, if you know, tell me later, because it bothers me. And as Jesus is positioning himself, not as a teacher, but as the one who, who has an even greater place in the story of redemptive history than Moses, he's doing so gently. He's kneeling down, writing in the dirt. This woman is brought to Jesus she was caught. Jesus gently positioned himself for the people listening, for the people who brought the woman, for the woman herself, for his disciples, in a position of authority. And I just, we need to pause for a second and notice something. This is the religious spirit that is in us that can get real ugly if we don't speak the gospel to it. These men thinking that here is sin and we need to punish it aggressively and in front of everyone and violently. What did their eyes look like when they brought her to Jesus? I think you know, because I think you see it in your own way of doing life and when you watch the news. And I think you know about this spirit and what this spirit needs so desperately is the gospel to be spoken to it very directly. Do you notice those brackets in the text for those of you that have your Bible out? That's because this is a spurious text and you're like, oh good. Now I get to learn the thing I had no interest in learning. I came to church in 33 degree rain and you're going to explain to me what a spurious text is. Yes, and there's a reason. A spurious text is something that we don't have in the earliest manuscripts of the manuscripts of the scripture. And we're people of the text, so this is important. We're people who's, who have witnesses. We can actually trace back through history their witness of these things. This is a religion that's not a group of stories, but one based upon evidence. 
evidence both from Christians and from those that opposed Christians and from those that were alongside Christians in the first century. We have evidence that links us back to the text. So why then would I preach on a spurious text? Well, when we have one and we're not sure if it's in all the manuscripts of the scripture, meaning we're not sure if it's part of scripture, we ask the question, does it sound like Jesus? And the reason I'm telling you that is not only because I don't want you to be thrown off by those brackets in the text, but also to remind you this is not a religion that's based upon spiritual practices. Those spiritual practices are important. This is a way that involves texts that go back to the first century, that involve witnesses, both Christians and non-Christians and opponents of Christians, and it involves evidence. The woman is brought to Jesus, and as she's brought to him, the crowds and the people that brought her and the woman and the disciples are all wondering how Jesus is going to respond. And the reason is they want to know who he is. Some aggressively so, some in a friendly way. I was with a friend recently who uh, needed to get a restraining order. And as we were sitting in the courtroom, myself and my friend and another pastor. There were about seven court cases before hers. And each one's triggering her, right? Because this is horrible. And the judge was so kind to plaintiff and to defendant, to his staff. He explained the law. He wasn't just sweet. The woman and the men who brought her and the disciples and the crowd are wondering what kind of judge is this. We know that because it says they were testing him. Religion in all its ugliness walks up to Jesus and asks him who he is. Really? And there's the facts of the matter and then there's the rest of it, right? You know this, that 80% of communication is nonverbal. Those of you that are, work in a... In, in a job, there's the information part of it, but then there's more going on in the conversation. Have you ever won an argument with your spouse and lost the argument? You know, come on, you know what I'm talking about. Like you won from a facts standpoint, but it's not pleasant for a while. When we ask each other questions, there's the first part of the question, which is the facts, and then there are at least two other questions that are accompanying them. And it's true for you, and it's true for me, and it's true for these women, it's true for the disciples, and it's true for the crowd, and it's important that we take note of this. There's the data, and then there's the, are you for me? And can I trust you? This is why your children repeat questions to you. And I know it's annoying. You can tell them it's challenging for them to repeat questions. But listen, this is why they repeat them. This is why your spouse might need to hear something more than once or twice or three times or why they say always or never or just or normal or all those horrible words that I don't like that you think I'm overthinking and you're right, I am. In addition to the data, are you for me and can I trust you? Those are the questions behind the questions. And this happens at work too. Your employee comes to you, comes to you or your employer all that 80% is wrapped up in that. 
They wanted to talk about what to do about this woman, but behind the question, and that's why it's such a powerful narrative, are you for us? Can we trust you? Will you even, will you guide us? I think that's what the woman is wondering. Are you for me and will you help? And of course, what we long to do in those relationships, whether it's in the workplace or with a parent, child, sibling, spouse, we want to find in as much as we can strength and accessibility, feelings and stability, grace and truth. And the reason I'm saying that is not because I want to give you some kind of self-help talk on communication. It's because I don't believe we can do that relationally unless we know the answer to the question the woman is asking Jesus. She doesn't ask him a direct question, but what's her implied question? Do you condemn me? I believe the reason we have so much trouble answering the questions of our neighbors is our fear and our shame and our anger that surround the question, do you condemn me? And we ask it of God. A woman is brought to Jesus, and that's to test him. And what does he do? He takes his time. What does embodied grace and truth do when religious ugliness appears on his doorstep? He pauses. And he starts writing in the dirt. And the, the first thing that I noticed about this this morning that I had not noticed, I've read this text like a hundred times. I studied it all week. And even before that, and I didn't notice that the older people realized first what he was doing. I love that. What does he write in the dirt? What do you think? What do you think he wrote? I kind of wonder if he wrote like a new commandment I give, love. I wonder if he's connecting us to the Exodus story. You know that in, in one of the accounts of God giving the nation of Israel the Ten Commandments, it says he wrote with his finger. But we don't know. And the reason we don't know is either because John decided it wasn't important or Jesus didn't tell him what he wrote and he was too far away or the Holy Spirit said to John, that's not as important as the text or as the fact that he waited. I love that he's so patient with these impatient for ugly religious injustice people are. He's so patient. He takes his time. I think he was taking his time to give them a mirror to let them understand what it was that they were doing and how ugly it was. I think he was giving some time for everybody to take a breath and realize that, yeah, we have, a, we have a lot of lists in the scripture of things that are destructive. And those are true. What do we do about it? How do we act like a spiritual community of love in light of these? So he says to those with the rocks in their hands, he responds to them gently. And I say that because he got up and down from the ground to write twice. So some time went. It's not like he bent down and just wrote an A in Greek that's, you know, agape, love. And they got up and said this. He's giving them time to understand this is so gentle. And I believe the Holy Spirit is right now growing us in this kind of gentleness towards neighbor. But the way it's growing us is that we hear the same question that we ask, that the woman is asking. Because you are, I think. And the reason I think that you ask this question is because I ask this question. 
I was trying to picture myself at dinner with Jesus this week, and I realized how shame and fear come in, and I'd be so nervous. He'd order a glass of red wine, and I'd be like, should I order coffee? And he'd be like, Matt, why do you need a stimulant? Like, that's what I thought. That's what went through my brain. I know the graciousness of the God of the Bible. And yet I'd be nervous, even though like nine times he was accused of being a, drunk and a drunkard and a glutton, and I don't think it's because he was that. I think it's because when people were with him, he was a delight to hang out with. And yet something in me, it's like, what would I order if he said, let's order something to drink before we get our food? I have no idea. That's the way that I'm asking the question, do you condemn me? And if you're confident that he doesn't, I am so grateful that the Holy Spirit has given you that confidence. But in a broken world, what the curse and the evil one and our flesh do is attempt to convince us that God is a condemning God. you know exactly what you'd order if he said let's get some drinks before food spectacular but something about trying to come up with that image in my mind threw me off Jesus responds gently to the men with the rocks go ahead and throw if you're without sin and the older ones being so wise started realizing the mirror that he was holding up to them and to her he says stop harming yourself that's what sin is. It's self-harm. But you know what else it is? It's harm to the community. Not just to those who knew what was happening. Sin harms the community. He says, stop harming the community. Stop reacting. Isn't that what we do? Isn't that actually why we sin? It's not because, like, you know what would be interesting today is if I sinned a bunch. That seems like a fun plan. No, but we long to feel different, and so we react to life hoping that this way or that way or this way or that way, and we can do it religiously, but this woman was doing it pretty irreligiously. We react because we long to feel different, and Jesus is saying, please stop reacting in order to make yourself feel differently. Please stop running from the fact that I have not only purchased a flourishing life for you, I have described it in the scriptures. The promises of God that lead to the commands of God or are for us to flourish. This is me riffing on him saying, go and sin no more. If you're, one, if you're looking at the text and like, I didn't see all that. This is me explaining Jesus saying to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. But the actions are incredibly less compelling than the heart question that I'm pretty confident you ask if you believe God exists. Whether you're a Christian or not, if you believe that God exists, you're asking some version of the question, and does he condemn me? No. This is so important. And if you're confident, you're like, I have nothing else to learn from the sermon. I'm so grateful. But for the rest of us, let's sit here for a second. Does he condemn me for what I did? No. Does he condemn me for what I didn't do? No. Does he condemn me for what happened to me? 
Isn't that such an incredible example of how the curse of the world works? That we feel shame or anger or fear because things that happened to us that we had nothing to do with? What a special... Uh, what an incredibly clear picture of how cursed the world is and how we respond to that. We feel guilt and shame over things that other people did to us and we had no power or relatively small amount of power. Does he condemn you? No. And what else? He is fond of you. Do you know that? That the the Father is even now pursuing your hearts. Those of you that are followers of Jesus, pursuing you into greater maturity. Those of you that are not followers of Jesus, I think you're in the room because he's pursuing you. And then because of the work of Christ, as we trust in it, we receive the comfort and sense that he is fond of you. That is good news starting with our own hearts and then with how we respond to neighbor. Your parent is going to tell you a story this week and you have heard it before. But because of the knowledge that God loves and likes you, you know that they're not only sharing information with you, they might even know they've told you the story before, they're also asking, are you for me? Can I trust you? Your child's definitely going to do that. I have a 10 and a 12-year-old. I can assure you they're going to repeat questions to you this week. And your confidence that God loves you and likes you, that you have his spirit in you, might lead you to take a breath. I pray that it does with me. And remember that they're asking if we're for them and can trust them. But it flows out of us hearing by faith the voice of Jesus Answer our question. Do you condemn me? No. Seeing by faith his face, embodying love. No, I do not condemn you. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come to you carrying all sorts of baggage and issues, including with that word, Father. And yet you are all loving and kind towards us. You have never been impatient with us. Your love will never fail. Would you help us to believe that and to believe it in our bones in ways we sense and understand? Jesus, we praise you that because of your work, we are made right with the Father. Holy Spirit, we ask that right this moment, we physically and spiritually and emotionally sense your assuring and comforting love and the fact that that love has no condemnation in it. Holy Spirit, help us to believe and to believe more deeply in your love. Amen.